0: The second reading comes from the Gospel of John. I will be reading in chapter 12 from verse 12 through verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've said it about 20 times in the course of This sermon series on the Gospel of John. Namely that the Gospel of John is about the identity of Jesus. There is of course no doubt that there was a real historical person named Jesus. A Jewish rabbi from Nazareth who was crucified by the Romans. There's no more doubt about that fact than there is doubt about the real historical person named Julius Caesar who was assassinated by Brutus. The question is not, was there a Jesus? The question is, who was Jesus? And that raises a second question, what are we going to do about it? Understanding who Jesus is has consequences for who we are as Christians. Who Jesus is determines who we are. The identity of Jesus requires a response. Now, Jesus remains the same. He doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus doesn't change, but we change. We are people who have been born into corrupted bodies. We are people living in a fallen world. We are always changing. And if we're fortunate we will change from being what the Bible calls children of wrath into what the Bible calls children of light. If God looks upon us with unmerited favor, we will change from being what the Bible calls strangers and aliens into being fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When we are born again, We leave behind one identity and we take on a new identity. Now the Bible describes this change in a hundred different ways. And every time it's a change from bad to good, from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light. This morning I'd like to point out that this change also involves a movement from living in solitary confinement to living a life embedded in the body of Christ. I want you to see that when you are born again, you go from being cut off, isolated, all alone, living for yourself, being to being a constituted organ within a body. You go from being all alone to being a specially cut stone in a grand cathedral. You go from being isolated to being a son or a daughter in a really big family. You go to being a branch in a lush grape arbor to being a sheep in a really large flock. Those are just some of the images of life in Christ. I don't want you to leave this morning without first grasping the identity of Jesus as revealed in John chapter 12 and second grasping what that identity means for you. In the 14 verses of our reading from the Gospel of John this morning, we see three major notes struck regarding the identity of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the humble king. In verses 12 through 15, we have a condensed retelling of the triumphal entry, the story of the first Palm Sunday. This story is developed more fully in the other Gospels, but the key feature of this story is that the people want a political Messiah. They want a political Savior, a political liberator, and politics is always about power. It's about exercising power to get what you want. But Jesus rather than coming in power, comes in weakness, which makes him a really lousy champion of a political cause. And so those who were more interested in political power than they were interested in encountering Almighty God, they went in the course of a week from shouting Hosanna to shouting crucify him. Politics is a tough business. The first clue to the identity of Jesus... Jesus is a humble king who enters Jerusalem, his capital city, riding a little borrowed donkey. Number two, Jesus is a dead raiser. One reason for the huge crowds of people who were gathering around Jesus and who lined the streets on Palm Sunday was Lazarus. We are reminded about Lazarus here in verses 16 through 19, a guy who had been dead, stopped being dead, when Jesus stood out in front of his tomb and called his name. If you think about it for just a moment, you'll realize that raising Lazarus is a game changer. How do you control someone who can bring people back to life? How do you strike fear into the heart of someone who has command over death? It's easy to forget, standing as we do 2,000 years after these events, but that first generation of Christians faced down death at every corner. They were facing every cruel kind of death that satanic minds could invent. They were roasted alive. They were torn apart by animals for the amusement of stadium ticket holders. They were crucified. They were sawn into two. They were beheaded. And you know what? It didn't matter. Because they had seen with their eyes this man Jesus could raise them from the dead. And it's a game changer. The second clue to the identity of Jesus, Jesus raises dead people. Number three, Jesus is the eternal king who lays down his life. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus hints at a much larger and deeper theological truth that life in this fallen world is so antithetical to So opposed to life in Christ that you cannot hold on to both. You can choose one or you can choose the other, but you can't choose both of those. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Apostle John says, Do not love this world or the things of this world. If anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. In our reading from the Gospel of John, Jesus, who is predicting his own death, says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The disciples love Jesus. And they are struck with horror and terror when the time comes for jesus to lay down his life it is the final hardest truth that they have to face that jesus is this king who has to die they will learn in time that it is because he's able to lay down his life in obedience to the father that he's also able to take it back up and say that i am the resurrection and the life if jesus had been unwilling to die He couldn't be a savior. The third clue to the identity of Jesus, Jesus is the eternal king who dies. So we've talked a little bit about the identity of Christ. Let's talk now about the identity of Christians. In our first reading this morning, the the apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome The year is probably 55 AD. That's some 20 or 25 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The church is growing like wildfire throughout the world in spite of all of the persecution. There's a strong church in Rome, though it is still an illegal underground church. I mean, literally underground. They meet in the catacombs in hollowed out caves under the city streets where the bones of dead people are stored. Paul writes to this church. He's never met them before. And one of the things he talks with them about is their identity in Christ. He reminds them of who they are. He tells them three things about their identity. First, Christians are nonconformists. Number two, Christians are humble. And number three, Christians are connected. First, Christians are nonconformists. In verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. Stop looking like the world. Stop blending in. Stop acting like a pagan while you're on the street and like a Christian when you're in church. Stop being a conformist. Stop doing what everyone else is doing. Be different. Stand out. Do something new. Do something authentic and original for once. The pressure to conform is enormous. Paul is writing to people living in the cultural capital of the world. It's the richest, the most vibrant, the most interesting city in the world at the time. And for centuries afterward, Rome is amazing. And you know what they say about Rome. When in Rome... Ah, you know your scripture. In other words, when in Rome, conform. Do not be conformed to this world. Why? Well, for one reason, you can't serve two masters. You can serve Rome or you can serve God. You can love Rome or you can love God. You'll either hate the one or love the other, but you cannot love them both. And another reason is pointed out for us by the Apostle John in 1 John 2.17, where we read, The world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world is ephemeral. It's just a bunch of stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow. And the cooler the stuff seems today, the lamer it seems tomorrow. But as Christians, we plug into something deeper and more serious. We're plugged into the eternal. Now depending on what day of the week it is, we're either wearing skinny jeans or bell-bottom slacks. And the fashion magazines will tell you how vital that is to you. But the eternal things, they never go out of fashion. Christians are nonconformists, And if you don't look any different from the surrounding culture, if people cannot pick you out as a Christian, then maybe you're not. Number two, Christians are humble. On the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the King of the entire universe, Jesus comes riding in on a borrowed donkey. It's a kind of crazy joke. It signals, however, a deep truth that Christ is humble, that he cannot be Christ if he's not humble, and that he is the model that we are to follow. in romans 12:3 paul says for by the grace given to me i say to everyone among you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to but to think with sober judgment that's a tough assignment Think about myself with sober judgment. Do you see how complicated and advanced and sophisticated a thing Paul is asking us to do? Sober judgments about ourselves, that means being able to see ourselves how we really are. That's not easy. We live inside of our own skins. We habitually see things from our own perspective. And we have this wonderful capacity to lie to ourselves about our own shortcomings. To lie to ourselves about our own good intentions. Oh my goodness how much we love to tell ourselves how perfect we are. It's really hard to escape this self-absorbed, self-aggrandizing, subjective point of view. But let me give you a little mental trick that will at least alert you to the fact that your perspective might need some help. Those of you who use social media, raise your hand. Those of you who use social media, think now about how many times... In this past week, you thought that the postings of your friends are stupid, evil, inane, embarrassing, lame, corny, dorky, and generally a waste of internet capacity. And then think about how many times you had the same thought about your postings. Do you really think that you are that much more interesting, that much more intelligent, that much more righteous than your average friend? Those of you who drive a car, raise your hand. Think of how many times in the past month that you thought that the driving behavior of other people was stupid, (laughs) evil, ignorant, dangerous, selfish, and just plain crazy. And then think of how many times you've said the same thing about yourself. Do you really think that you're that much safer? That much more intelligent? That much more courteous than the average driver? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think but to think with sober judgment. Number three, Christians are connected. In verses 4 through 8, Paul writes, well, actually this is just verse 4, For as one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. To be a Christian means to be connected with other Christians. Christians are connected people. They're connected to the common body. But also, their identity interpenetrates with each other. We're not only part of the body of Christ, we're also part of each other. If you're going to church, the way you go to a drive-in movie isolated in the comfort of your own car, if you're treating church like a television program, watch from the comfort of your lazy boy, then you've seriously missed out on what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is being part of a family. A family with a lot of crazy uncles and lots of black sheep but a family where the people are involved in each other's lives. It's one of the reasons that we do small group Bible studies here at HVPC. If you belong to this church and you're only coming on Sunday morning, then you're just a 50% member. And you might actually be choosing the less important 50%. In small group Bible studies, we know each other. We share one another's burdens, we study scripture together, we pray for each other. That's where the real work of the body of the Christ goes on. Sunday morning is just a weekly pep rally compared with the weekly game of life that we live out in our small group Bible studies. Now some people don't like this part of life in the church because small groups you know, they're a threat to our privacy. Small groups feel too intimate. Small groups are complicated. Small groups have, I don't know, they got uh, they funny people in them. But that's how God intended it to be. And that's what the Christian life looks like. And so I want to again invite you to get involved in the life of a small group Bible study. It's how we do church. Who we are as Christians is determined by who Jesus is. Jesus is this humble king. Jesus is this dead person raiser. Jesus is an eternal king who lays down his own life. And his death buys us life. Jesus died in obedience to his father so that we might be raised from the dead. He raises us so that we might live non-conforming lives. So that we might live lives of deep humility. So that we might live lives richly connected with other Christians. The identity of Jesus requires a response. Who is Jesus to you? And what are you going to do about it? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, for this day we give you thanks. This is the day that you have made, and you had purposes in making this day, and you have included us in those purposes. And we're grateful for your invitation to be a, a part of what what you're doing in your world. We give you thanks for your word, for this gospel of John, for this letter to the Romans. We thank you that these things were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they are true for us today. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might lay hold of them. We might lay hold of those truths and be shaped by them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this family that you've invited us into, this family full of crazy uncles and black sheep. Thank you that you've given us a place at the table. That you've invited us to participate. That you told us we're no longer outsiders or strangers or aliens but we're sons and daughters. And Lord, we pray for the faith to believe that. Lord, forgive us for loving this world more than we love you. Forgive us for being seduced by comfort and by power and by prestige and by ease. Lord, I pray that you would retune our appetites so that we long for you, that we hunger for you, that we thirst for you, because outside of you there's only death. But in you there is life and rich life, and eternal life. Lord, I pray that as we come to this sacrament this morning, that we might be fed spiritually by it, that by taking these humble elements, we in some way might grasp more firmly the truth that we have been engrafted into the body of Christ, and that we are brothers and sisters with one another. Lord, make that truth alive for us. Strengthen us this morning at this pep rally so that we can go out this week and actually do what it is that you've called us to do. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of all of our praise and glory and honor and attention. You alone are worthy because you are the source of life and light and everything that is good in our lives. And so let us praise you this morning. Let us praise you for who you are. Lord, give us a deeper and a fuller and a richer and a higher grasp of who you are. Show yourself to us. Lord, we're blind by birth. And if you don't open our eyes, we don't have a, we, we don't have a hope. And so I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. Amen. Amen. As Jesus.